I asked her if she would sing that at 9.30 this morning. Um, I wish I could preach a sermon, <laughs> even remotely that good, and that kind of notice. Um, the hymn, Rock of Ages, which we sang earlier, was written by Augustus Toplady. A few different stories exist surrounding the origins of that hymn, but no doubt several scripture texts played a part in its inspiration. One such text is Exodus 33 in verse 22. It is from where the hymn's title emerges. The message is simply this. Unless God's presence abide with us, and unless God hide us in his mercies and in his compassion, we would surely perish in sin. I hope that you will see how that hymn, as well as the hymns, How Great Thou Art and Give Me Jesus, prove a fitting prelude to God's word for us today. I am in Exodus chapter 33, reading verses 12 to 23. I know I just wrapped up a series in Exodus, and now we're in a series, 66 books, and 66 messages. If you're so able, I would ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word, Exodus 33, beginning at verse 12. This is the word of our God. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. On a stark black 1966 cover of Time magazine, the question was printed, is God dead? It was a question that Friedrich Nietzsche had first raised in the 1800s. 
He had quipped, if there is a God, how can I bear myself not to be that God? And once he realized it was a feat he could never accomplish, he declared God's demise altogether. It is not difficult to look around our cultural landscape to see how that sentiment has only grown louder. Practical atheism runs rampant in our culture. More people are living as if God does not exist because they are living as if God does not matter. God is absent from our schools. He is absent from our justice system, absent from our work, absent from our entertainment, absent from our conversations, absent from our homes. And dare I even say that God is becoming absent from the teachings in our churches. Why is this so? Quite simply because we don't like being told what to do. We don't like to be led by something except from our personal wants and our personal whims. There is, however, one major problem with all of this. God exists and God is not absent. In fact, our God is a God of great glory. We can make a number of arguments for the being and glory of God, I will present a few of those to you this morning. Anselm first posed the ontological argument for God's existence. In other words, he argued that the very idea of God proves his being. If we can conceive of a greatest possible being, Anselm reasoned that God must exist. Thomas Aquinas later presented a cosmological argument. That is, we must have a first cause as well as a theological argument. That is, we see God in the complexity of design. Why is there something rather than nothing? Where do time and space and matter come from. Nothing comes from nothing. And the most plausible explanation for the existence of everything is the person of an all-powerful, ever-present God. Matter is not eternal, and it cannot exist in itself. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare his glory. And so we sang together, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Beyond the fact that our universe ever came into being at all, the beauty and precision of its design further support the grand designer. Scientists have shown that at least 25 constants are necessary for life to exist. I'm going to 
only cite one of those constants this morning, the rate of the universe's expansion. If it expanded any more rapidly than it does, then the stars, galaxies, and planets would never form. If it expanded any less rapidly than it does, then the whole universe would collapse upon itself. Here is the awesome fact. In order for this universe to exist, its rate of expansion must be accurate to one part in 10 to the 57th power. I'm really not smart enough to understand what all that means. But what I can tell you is that every mathematician contends that it is vast beyond our comprehension. British astrophysicist and former atheist Paul Davies, in light of the clear evidences for design, concluded that God must have fine-tuned nature's numbers to make this universe. One additional case for God's existence appears through Immanuel Kant. It's something he calls a moral argument. He goes on to discuss a categorical imperative. It is much too philosophical for me to get into in any detail. Needless to say, let me just conclude that without God, there can be no objective moral values. Without God, morality is relative. In fairness, moral relativism is the soup of the day, so to speak. But there is a cataclysmic problem with it. Some things are evil, no matter how people try to slice it. Genocide, child abuse, rape, and so on. There is a right and there is a wrong. Romans 2.15 even tells us that God has written his law on every human heart. So deep down in our conscience, we know sin is sin. While all of these arguments are strong ones for God's existence, none of them can prove it. But the fact of the matter is that the Bible never sets out to prove God's existence and God's glory anyway. And there's a reason for that. We realize God's existence simply because of who he is and what he is like. Exodus 34 verse 19 helps to make God's character known. So we must not miss the breathtaking and awesome scene that unfolds here. The Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In other words, our God who is a God of great glory, is a God of great goodness. 
God is a revelatory God, and God reveals himself precisely in the way that we need him most when we need him most. It is the revelation of God's goodness that Moses had become especially familiar with throughout the Exodus. God faithfully sustained the Hebrew people during their enslavement in Egypt. That is his goodness. God mercifully delivered the Hebrew people from their captors. That is his goodness. God wisely gave directives to the Hebrew people on how to live their lives. That is his goodness. God lovingly entered into a covenant with the Hebrew people. That is his goodness. Time and time again, Moses had seen God work. Time and time again, Moses had heard God speak. Time and time again, Moses had come into God's presence. But it did not prevent Moses from wanting to know God more. Tony Evans suggests, if Moses were alive today, that would mean he sometimes turned off the television and the radio. That would mean he stopped texting or phoning his friends as much. That would mean he spent less time on social media. Many believers today say they want to know God, but when you take a closer look at their schedule, you realize they're just talking noise. Listen, if a guy really wants to get to know a girl, he's going to spend time with her. He's going to talk to her. Yes, Moses was always desiring to know God more. He was always wanting more of God. But it is important to understand exactly why he asks to see God's glory here. It is because he wanted to make sure that God's presence would still remain with the Hebrew people after their heinous sin with the golden calf at the foot of the mountain. In Exodus 33:14, the Lord tells Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The pronoun you in that scripture verse is singular. Only Moses immediately makes an appeal on behalf of all Israel. He says, if your presence, your presence does not go with us. Once again, Moses is interceding on behalf of the Hebrew people. I think Moses was a great leader for many reasons. Two of them stand out here. First, he recognized how desperately the people needed God's presence. And second, he constantly appealed to God on behalf of those people. Moses knew that a promised land without God was no land of promise at all. The greatest judgment of God is his absence. In fact, that's what hell is, the absence 
of God's goodness. Pastor Mike McKinley suggests that it's worth asking ourselves, if heaven gave me everything, the job, the guy or the gal, the car, the health, the wealth, but Jesus was not there, would I be content in heaven? Or if heaven gave me nothing but Jesus, would I be content? Would it be enough for me? If you identify as a Christian today, can I ask you why? Is it because you desire God's blessings? His blessings are indeed great. But what do you do when this life becomes especially hard and you are found in a desert place or you are walking in a wilderness? The prosperity gospel is wrong for many reasons. One of those reasons is because we do not seek after God for his blessings. No, we pursue Christ simply because of who he is and because we desire Christ more. Come what may, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Moses certainly knew that it was God's presence that makes us his people. We are nothing, we have nothing apart from the presence of God. Think about what distinguished Israel as God's people in the first place. It wasn't their land because they didn't have any yet. It wasn't their wealth because other nations well exceeded their possessions. It wasn't their righteousness because they have already shown a propensity toward sin. The only thing they had going for them was the presence of God with them. I believe it is why Jesus later says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. The rock of ages in whom we must hide is Christ and Christ alone. Not one of us could ever be saved by the labor of our hands. We are far too sinful for that. Thou, Christ, must save, and thou alone. Moses asking to see God's glory thus serves as a means of ratifying the covenant formally established in Exodus chapter 24. I find support for this view in the chapter that follows in Exodus chapter 34. I also find support for this view by the way God ratifies anew the covenant with Elijah atop a mountain in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you look to that chapter, pay special attention to, to verse 11. Further, I find support for this view by the way that Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. 
Only Christ will do more than simply ratify a broken covenant. He will fulfill it. God's glory does not pass by Christ because Jesus manifests God's glory. The point I hope that you gain from all this is the knowledge that God is a covenant-keeping God. The Lord graciously forgives the Hebrew people after they had broken the covenant, the very covenant they had sworn to keep. His glory would still go with them. His goodness would still abide with them. Yes, God is a revelatory covenant keeping God, and it plays itself out in our redemption story. We receive God's redemption because of who he is and because of what he is like. Did you notice the promise of God's presence proclaimed by a name? Fast forward then to Matthew chapter 1 in the passage that Pastor Chris read from earlier. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him the name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. It's God's presence that we desperately need. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. That is who he is. That is what he is like. Did you notice also that God's presence goes with his people solely from the pleasure that he takes in his mediator. God affirms that he will remain with Israel despite their idolatrous hearts because of Moses. He tells Moses, you have found pleasure in my sight. It is eerily close to the words that the heavenly father will speak over the perfect mediator. You are my son, and whom I delight. So when we wonder how God could ever be pleased with us, when we feel like failures because of the recurring nature of some besetting sin in our lives, when we doubt that God could ever love a wretch like me, remember, 
that God chooses to have mercy and compassion on all who place their trust in the covenant-keeping Christ. The answer to our wanderings, the answer to our failures, the answer to our doubts is that God is pleased with Jesus. And if you and I are in Christ, he sees us as he sees his son. And the presence of Christ abides in you to go with you no matter what you may face. God is not dead. And he will never abandon his people because of Jesus. That is who he is. That is what he is like. I would call it pretty amazing. I would call it grace. Pray with me. Christ, that you would leave the glory of heaven, that you would come among us so that your presence would abide in us and will lead us into the presence of the glory of God. Lord, let us never, ever, ever take it for granted your great love for us. Let us never fail to recognize our dependence upon you. Indeed, we can do nothing apart from you, Christ, but through you, we can do all things because you give us strength. No matter what we may face in these various and sundry times, our hope is in you, Christ, and in you alone. Guide us by your amazing grace, I pray. Jesus, in your name, amen. If you have a decision to make today, as we stand and sing together that hymn, Amazing Grace, the author is open. Won't you come?
goodness that he has promised to you is if you trust in Jesus, his presence never leaves you. Go, I pray, in the peace of Christ and his presence. Amen.